1: Before we begin today, I'd like to thank everybody for their response to the last episode. I did it for probably purely selfish reasons. It was just something that I needed to do, Uh, but your response has been uh, wonderful, and I'm glad that I reached so many people. I also apologize if I was the cause of anyone ugly crying at a train station and getting strange looks. Um, You know who you are. Also, uh, you will notice from the length of the episode that this is going to be the episode for both January and February. As a result, there will be two plugs for my uh, Agora Podcast Network Comrades in Arms. For January, we will have the cannonball in a moment. And for February, I should just let you all know that Travis Dow, friend of the show, is still putting out a million different shows. And you should check out all of his and Pete Coleman's projects at podcastmic.com. There's some new Secret Cabinet episodes out, and that's a show about the weirder parts of histories. Listeners of this show will, of course, appreciate the History of Germany podcast. And then his collaborator, Pete Coleman, does a show on YouTube called Past Access, which I can't recommend highly enough. Pete travels to report back on local history and culture in different places, and he has tips on accessible travel in cities like Stockholm, Rome, Dresden, and many, many more. So again, check out podcastnick.com, which is part of the Agora Podcast Network. In
0: 1994... Yale literary critic Harold Bloom created a massive list of the works
1: he considered the standards of Western literature, beginning with the Bible. In 2016, two
0: overly educated autodidacts, one a professional, the other an interested layman, set out to read every book on the list. Thus was born The Cannonball, a podcast attempt to read every book in Bloom's list and along the way explore the whole notion of a canon to begin with. From Dante's Inferno to Ibsen's Dollhouse, from Don Quixote's Extremadura to Elizabeth Bennett's Hertfordshire, join Daniel and Claude as they provide critical commentary, analysis, and from the gut personal reactions for all of the books you are too lazy or hungover to read an undergrad. That's the cannonball.
1: The Wittenberg to Westphalia podcast is only possible because of the armies and mercenaries that guard our borders. Amongst these armies and mercenaries are a few shining captains who lead our troops in battle by giving me money. This month, we will be thanking the following patrons and donors. Christopher has become a patron, and shall be known from this day forward as Viceroy Chris of the Arbergine Colored Socks. Greg has become a patron, and so he shall be known from this day until the next as Sir Greg the Very Good Knight. Patron Brian has requested to be known by all of the troops and captains of the land as Grand Poobah Brian. Donor Marianne's excellent services to this podcast and this realm have earned her the following sobriquet. Abbess Marianne of the Vicious Letter Opener. Thank you to all patrons and donors. Uh, For the rest of you out there, if you too can become a patron or donor, simply go to the website, wittenbergtwestfaliapodcast.weebly.com, and go to the donate page, uh, or the support the show page. I should know this. It's my page. I made it. Anyway, go there, and either go make a secure donation via PayPal, or become a recurring member via Patreon. And there you can see the levels of support and all that fancy fun stuff. You can also go to the store page and purchase things that have real physical value rather than me saying your name on the air and having a good time. Although I, I personally really enjoy having a good time. For the rest of you, ratings and reviews on iTunes are always appreciated. Check us out on Facebook. There's a fan group, Wittenberg to Westphalia, Fans of the Reformation. That's great. We, we are on Twitter. You can email me, all that great stuff. Uh, and it's been really great to hear from so many people in the last couple of months. It's, it's meant a lot. Okay, on with the show. Oh, and uh, one thing, this is a longer episode, as you can tell from the runtime. Fear not, there is an intermission. I hear that Andrew has cued us up some awesome big beat inspired revival trap music. So, you know, we've got that to look forward to. So be sure to uh, listen out for the uh, intermission, at which point you can use the restroom, get yourself a snack, see your family, whatever it is that you people do. In the European Middle Ages, society was composed of three separate yet equally important parts. Those who prayed, those who fought, and those who worked. But this is not their story.
0: On a February night in 1322, a Muslim called Joseph was arrested for taking part in an attack on a mill and was taken to the bailiff of Darroca's prison. Sancho de Ravanera, a Christian of the town, rode up to the gate of the prison with a gang of thugs comitiva, and demanded that the bailiff set bail. The bailiff refused, since it was late and he did not know of what crime the Muslims stood accused. Then Sancho, quote, puffed up with pride, put one hand to his sword and grabbed the Saracen with the other hand. And when the bailiff said to him that he did wrong by including our, the kings, Muslims in his gang, the said Sancho Ravenera answered that he would form factions with Muslims as well as Jews to the displeasure of anyone who said otherwise, end quote, and took off with the Muslim. Sancho and Joseph insisted that religion could not prevent them from making common and violent cause. Although an alternative argument based on religious identity existed, and this was the argument that the bailiff made in his complaint. Quote from Communities of Violence by David Nuremberg.
1: Quote read by JF, host of the excellent The Leopard and the Lily podcast. Go check it out. Everyone's right and no one is
2: sorry. That's the start and the end of the story. From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning...
1: Greetings, my name is Benjamin Jacobs, your host as we travel towards Wittenberg and Westphalia, the Wars of the Reformation. This is episode 62, On the Outside Looking In, On the Inside Looking Out, part 2. Last time out, we began our discussion of how non-normative groups related to mainstream society in the Middle Ages with the now-traditional review of historiography and theory. I talked about how Jewish historical studies have the odd distinction of being basically the only minority study area to emerge from within the structuralist movement and I talked about the positives and negatives that have resulted in the grand narrative that resulted. Today I'm going to look at how space was and was not made for non-normative groups in the Middle Ages using some of the concepts and evidence presented by David Nirenberg in his book The Communities of Violence, before discussing what these ideas tell us about medieval society as a whole. Podcast footnote. I forgot to mention this last time out, so let me remedy this up front. In many ways, Judaism and Christianity co-evolved during the end stages of the Roman Empire, and the process is as open to interpretation as it is fascinating. Despite loads of interest in the topic, much of the work in this area was traditionally done by religiously motivated people for decades who would separate themselves out into neat little camps and argue achieving nothing. This means that really good scholarship on the process that took place is in some cases only happening now. There are two great podcasts on the subject out there, though they are necessarily incomplete at this time due to the ongoing nature of some of the research. They are From Israelite to Jew by Dr. Michael Satlau and the History in the Bible podcast by Gary Stevens. They're both great. They both definitely have a perspective, so go into them from that standpoint, but they're both wonderful. End podcast footnote. I'd like to begin today, however, with a little bit of background that I brushed against last time but didn't really get into detail on due to time. As you can see from the running length of this episode, time is still an issue, but I don't want to split another one. Now as I indicated last time, this episode isn't just going to be about the Jews of Europe, but it will also be broadly about any group that was outside the mainstream of European society on whom I was able to find sufficient research materials. In particular, I'm going to be discussing the Jewish, Muslim, and leper communities of Southern Europe at some length, though I will also be discussing the Jewish communities of Northern Europe. There really weren't that many Muslims in Northern Europe. The Roma people, heretics, members of what we would call the LGBT community, amongst others, should by rights be included in this episode. But again, as you can see by the runtime, this episode is already enormous, I'll try to get back to them at a later date. Now then, let's start off with the history of Muslims in medieval Europe. As most of you probably know, Islam as a religion was founded around the year 610, and over the course of the next hundred years or so, it developed military and political institutions around the religion that allowed a small group of semi-nomadic tribesmen from the Arabian desert to lay low two major empires and conquer vast swaths of territory from the borders of China to the Iberian Peninsula. Of course, ruling this kind of territorial expanse would have been difficult for any political entity, and so by the year 800, this area had fragmented into smaller political territories that ranged in size and competence from tiny pirate kingdoms on islands in the Mediterranean to relatively large empires in what we would call the Middle East. As we've covered in this show in the past, the Islamic world was kept out of the Balkans for most of the Middle Ages by the remnants of the Eastern Roman Empire, but they did enter into the continent in a few other places. Islamic-led armies conquered most of the Iberian Peninsula and even invaded Francia in 720. After the collapse of the Umayyad Caliphate, various territories in North Africa began to act semi-independently, which left the Mediterranean in something of a state of chaos. Bands of pirates and mercenaries moved around basically at will and conquered several of the major islands in the Mediterranean. They even took substantial territories in southern France and southern Italy. Though they were eventually driven off the mainland, and while the nascent Italian city-states drove them off many of the smaller islands, they were able to consolidate their hold on Sicily by 965, and they held it firmly until 1095. In Iberia, the Islamic Caliphate of Cordoba was extremely diverse, rich, and sophisticated, but political infighting eventually caused it to go into decline, and then it was taken over by a group of scary desert fanatics called the Almohads. The Christian kingdoms of the mountainous north gradually pushed down the peninsula, creating strips of parallel territory. The kings of the north sometimes tried to compel the non-Christian inhabitants to convert, but the result was usually that the Muslim and Jewish populations would flee and leave the new territory devoid of population and therefore financially worthless. The kings attempted to resolve this problem by recruiting Christians from all over northern Europe to come settle the new territories, but ultimately the only practical solution was to offer religious tolerance for Jewish and Muslim populations, to either remain at home when the area was conquered, or to come back afterwards. Soon, it became the Christian kingdoms of Iberia that became notably wealthy, diverse, and sophisticated, though their fragmentation did limit their power initially. Ultimately, around the time of the Black Death, Iberian Christian society turned against this enlightened tolerance, and the Muslims there were subject to the same outbreaks of violence and political repression that the Jews were at the same time. In Sicily, things went a bit differently. While the Emirate of Sicily was prosperous and sophisticated in its way, continued internal revolts, dynastic instability, and international threats kept the Emirate off balance and insecure. Ultimately, they also had the bad luck to be up against the rising power of the Normans in southern Italy, a group of people who were descended from Vikings, had few scruples, lots of military experience, and an honestly bizarre amount of luck. They took the kingdom in only a few years of glorious swashbuckling adventure. We're going to be talking about them more in later episodes, but if you can't wait, check out Lars Brownworth's uh, Norman Centuries. Many Muslims chose to leave Sicily immediately, though many stayed. The Normans were not particularly known for being picky theologically, but they did pursue a policy of Latinization where they imported colonists from northern Italy to gradually settle the island over time. Anti-Muslim riots began fairly early, and many Muslims chose to convert, but the process of Latinization was fairly lengthy. Ultimately, the rulers of Sicily began to resort to rounding up Muslims and deporting them, but the process was not completed until sometime between 1240 and 1280. I should just add that the term is Latinization because there was also a Greek population there, which just confuses things a lot more. Ultimately, Greek-speaking populations were gradually absorbed into the Latin population, but they persisted a lot longer because they weren't just being deported en masse. Lepers may seem like a strange inclusion on this list of non-normative people. For those who don't know, leprosy is a bacterial illness of the skin, where an infection acquired by touch causes the skin and flesh of the affected person to slowly die, rot, and fall off. Yes, this is as gross as it sounds. It is worth saying up front that, as was a common refrain in my discussion of illness in the military middle ages with Raven from Tiny Vampires, the labels used for illnesses in pre-modern times were very imprecise, to the point where modern medical historians aren't always fully sure whether what was being called leprosy in the records, what we would call leprosy today. It seems that any kind of creeping skin infection may have been called leprosy at some point, which would include things like scrofula and a variety of fungal infections. Many of these conditions would gradually be split off from leprosy over the course of the Middle Ages and the early modern period. But in any case, diagnosing the difference in an era before microscopes and germ theory was often down to skill and luck on the part of the doctor that was generally not widely available. In any case, the things that puts lepers into this non-normative social category is that, from ancient times onwards, people knew that leprosy was A, a really horrible way to die, B, communicable by touch somehow, C, basically incurable, and D, very unpleasant to look at. We should also add that leprosy can also take a very long time to kill you, so lepers were just around. We now know that, like many illnesses, leprosy has an incubation period in which it is communicable but doesn't present symptoms. On the other hand, not everyone who touched a leper, even if they were showing symptoms, would become infected, because the transfer rate is relatively low and it gets complicated and I don't really understand it all. Ultimately, all this lack of clarity created a situation where people in the ancient world saw lepers as an extremely existential threat. In many places, the result was that someone who contracted leprosy would be violently driven away from their community, and their stuff would be given to their heirs as if they had died. This was not a particularly good solution, since it made the leper more mobile than they would otherwise have been, and as they wandered the countryside begging for food, they would spread the contagion around, touching things. Meanwhile, all their stuff, which they had spent, you know years touching, would be given to new people. That said, we do hear about many potential ways to cure lepers from ancient Greek and Roman medical texts, and there's some other evidence that indicates that not every leper was driven away in this way, so th- there was a, a, probably a spectrum of reactions to your uncle getting leprosy. To its credit, early Christianity tended to the treatment side of the spectrum. The early Christian texts tend to view lepers with sympathy rather than hostility. The Bible is full of stories of Jesus and the various apostles and martyrs wandering around, curing lepers, hanging out with them, and generally being nice to them. For most early Christians, even those who could not magically cure illnesses, it was considered a basic duty to provide charitable assistance to the sick in general, and lepers in particular. If we fast forward to the early Middle Ages, this basic viewpoint was retained by the church. At the same time, the basic human fear of this illness remained, and it was clear that some form of quarantine was probably a good idea given what they knew about how it was spread, which was not much, but the touch was involved. So while lepers that came to the attention of the authorities were kept isolated for basic hygienic reasons, the church did tell people that they needed to be kind to them and to take care of them. Monasteries would provide for their day-to-day needs, and noble families would donate resources to the monasteries to help with the cause. Buildings and medical institutions were set up to shelter and feed the lepers away from the rest of society. Given the limits of medieval medicine, this is probably about the best that we could hope for, and it is all very heartwarming, though it did not stop the spread of the illness basically at all. Incidentally, these colonies and hospitals gradually became very wealthy institutions, often separate from local jurisdiction, and yes, this is going to be important later. In any case, Christianity has a long tradition about how it's important to be nice to lepers. Which makes the fact that the Christian church would go on to develop an entire theology about systematically excluding lepers from society and beating them up is pretty annoying. Okay, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself and it isn't really fair to blame the church, but let me explain. First off, not everyone in a leper hospital was a leper. Many of them were just sick or transient, many of them were staff. Which kind of undermined the quarantine aspects of separating out the lepers. Over time, rules were passed that restricted the inmates of the hospitals to the grounds of the hospital and limited contact with the outside world, but these rules had a ton of loopholes and enforcement problems. So having a leper hospital in your area didn't mean that you had a place to send your lepers to be cared for. It meant that you had a place nearby where other people would send their lepers, and then those lepers would wander around your neighborhood touching things. Secondly, church theologians began to use medical terminology as a metaphor in their sermons and writings. They would talk about a sickness of the soul, as opposed to a physical one, and that people with a sickness of the soul were genuinely bad people, who could communicate their sickness to others, and therefore deserved to be isolated. Possibly because lepers played such a major part in the life of Jesus, leprosy was often used as a metaphor for this kind of spiritual quarantine. One thing led to another. Common people of Europe, including many priests, lost track of the subtle metaphorical points being made, and came to the conclusion that leprosy was evidence that a person was evil and that God hated them. And since God hated them and punished them with an illness, it was suspected that all that wandering around the countryside touching stuff that the lepers were doing was somehow an intentional effort to spread the illness. After all, if I can't be healthy, none of you will be either. ha <laughs> Is what the lepers were supposed to be saying. The main church and royal authorities didn't necessarily act on this interpretation, but once again, mobs of people would sometimes seize upon these arguments to justify attacks of increasing ferocity upon leper colonies. The mobs would go in, beat up or kill the inmates, and then plunder all of their stuff. So to be clear, the local peasants thought that the lepers were intentionally going around touching things, and so they went into the leper colonies, which was full of things that the lepers had touched, and used their human hands to beat them up. Presumably beating up a leper with your human hands would lead to a lot of bodily fluids all over the place. Then the people went and took all the things that the lepers had lying around and brought them home. Now to be fair, the leper hospitals had a lot of good stuff due to their wealth and not all of it was for the lepers. Much of it was for the monks administering the colonies. But there is plenty of documentary evidence that the peasants stole the clothes off the back of the lepers and took it home to sell or wear. I'm sorry, I'm I'm involuntarily waving my hands around in the air in frustration. Okay, it stopped. Some of these raids were actually very well organized, as we will see later, and temporarily broke up the hospitals, but ultimately there was an issue with the lepers that you didn't have with the other groups we've discussed. No matter how violent you are, driving the victims of an illness away will never be effective until you understand the cause of the disease and break the chain of infection. New lepers would just show up all the time, and they had to go somewhere. So the leper hospitals were eventually re-established by the powers that were. Over time, the development of public health and hygiene made it easier to contain the spread of leprosy. Things like washing with soap can make transmission of skin-borne illnesses harder. Different subsets of leprosy were also gradually identified and found to be treatable in different ways. The bacterium that caused the illness was identified in 1873, and that made treatment more systematic, if nothing else. All the same, leprosy remained a real and present danger to public health up until 1940, when the first modern antibacterial treatment for leprosy was found. In the 1960s and 70s, new drugs were discovered and combined into a powerful multi-drug cocktail, which is highly effective and remains the standard treatment today. Leprosy has been almost entirely eliminated in the industrialized world, though a lack of access to hygienic living conditions and proper medical care means that it remains a threat in developing countries. So, with three broad narratives of non normative populations on the table in front of us, what are we to make of this? Were people in the European Middle Ages just horrible, violent xenophobes? And what was life like for these groups on a day to day basis? What were normal daily interactions like? To answer these questions, we need to go back to the discussion of identity, and how identity interacts with ideology and the incentives of the economy and society. In the Middle Ages, the preoccupations of identity were different than they are today, but there were functional similarities. While the mass culture of the United States is obsessed with signifiers and class and race, with rich white men on top of the pile, in the Middle Ages their identity concepts revolved around structured social hierarchies, Christian morality, familial bonds, and the need for stability. Who was on top of the pile in the early Middle Ages is a bit more of a complex point than today's, as there were competing intellectual traditions. For literate people, and for historians who focus on written sources, the normative concept is clearly that of the monk. Only clerics were literate for many centuries, and most of the intellectual life of this period happened in the monasteries. As such, you get somewhat silly concepts, like that I referred to a few episodes back, where the earliest conceptions of class in Europe consisted of the quote-unquote regular clergy, i.e. monks, and then the quote-unquote lay clergy, which is to say priests, bishops, popes, etc. And then just everyone else in the entire society was in a third category altogether. Needless to say, this concept of clerical normativity only represented a very small portion of the population and was not widely shared. Many of the other cultural products of this period were part of oral traditions, and so they only survived when they were written down by clerics later on. This makes it seem like these cultural products were fewer, or not existent but in reality we should probably assume that things like Beowulf, the Song of Roland, the Icelandic sagas, and other similar poetic products represented a fairly widespread cultural strata amongst the secular leaders of Europe. I think it's fair to say that while these aristocratic traditions had not yet fully developed into what we think of as chivalry, there was a definite aristocratic class subculture that saw the leaders of noble houses as the normative case. How these concepts of identity filtered down to the village level of the commoners is unclear. We have very little written work to consider as evidence. But it is fair to say that the peasants and city dwellers saw themselves as normal in some way as well. So rather than there being one monolithic European identity with one normative case, there was a kaleidoscope of subcultures. As we've discussed in this show many times, these subcultures were in many ways tied together into a hierarchy of legal and personal relationships that held society together. What we've not talked about was the really high levels of conflict that also existed between and within these subcultural groups. The basic fact is that, as much as neighbors relied on cooperation to survive, which is something I've tended to emphasize in this show, they were also constantly in competition for resources. Individuals sought to get advantages that would help them produce more wealth to help protect their family in bad times, and to help them gain prestige and wealth in good times. As much as the traditional village was communitarian in its land management practices, strips of land were also commodities that could be acquired, and some peasants became very wealthy relative to their status. This by itself shows that there was economic competition in process, before we even get to the court records of fistfights, domestic arguments, housebreaking, and murders. The peasants looked on the lord to mediate these disputes, but then the peasants were also in constant conflict with their lords over fees and taxes. Lords fought constant low-level wars against each other, and sought to use the feudal legal institutions of these monarchial governments to give them advantages against each other. At the same time, the lords were jealous of their rights as nobles, and were usually in low-level conflicts with the king over the extent of the government's power. And of course, the king was himself a powerful noble, and was also seeking land and resources to help the consolidation of the monarchy's power, and to fight other kings. Sometimes, the kings and nobles looked to the church to mediate their conflicts, But then secular society was also always skirmishing with the church over various bureaucratic minutiae, and the church was not immune from its own role in disputes over land and authority, both internal and external. Abbots sought to shake off the authority of bishops, bishops sought control over their clergy, and the pope sought to tighten his control over all these people. Everyone involved in these conflicts was part of alliance networks of families, clans, political allies, and feudal interest groups. They were also all keenly aware that these conflicts could easily spiral out of control and result in blood feuds, open war, and eventually mass death events. Today we rely on institutions to contain this kind of conflict, but given the massively decentralized and undeveloped context of the Middle Ages, almost every aspect of society was shaped by the need to contain, control, and avoid conflicts, while still delivering the resources needed to keep everyone's allies on side. This was done by circumscribing conflict within legal codes, codes of behavior, codes of identity, and by constant negotiation. Violations of these norms could make a person an enemy of society, but as we've already seen in the episodes on the Frankish royal clans, the society of the Middle Ages could be extremely reluctant to do away with people entirely. And as we saw in the episodes on warfare, negotiation was just an ever-present part of any conflict. There are two big lessons to take from this. First, despite conflicting normative identities, there was an overarching set of shared cultural ideals that everyone bought into simply as a way to manage their conflicts and keep them from escalating. While not an exhaustive list, we can mention ideals like stability, hierarchy, Christianity, prosperity, family loyalty, and social loyalty as ideas that a fairly large portion of the population could take part in and which helped bond together the different subcultures. Second, for the people of the Middle Ages, conflict and violence was as much a part of the way their society was constructed as their shared ideals of stability. The boundary between conflict and naked violence was permeable and fluid, and could move seamlessly from a negotiation from a land purchase to open war. This fluidity pertained in many ways at all levels of society and can be seen in the sky-high murder rates we talked about in the episodes about cities. It also meant that there was a strong and highly fluid interaction between ideology and personal advantage. There is one last identity point to make before we move on. I'm not sure if it really fits here, but I just need to address this. The idea of Davidic kingship is something we've mentioned before, and which we will explore more in later episodes. But in short, the idea was that you would know a Christian king was good because they are successful, and God makes good people succeed. As far as the king goes, what he needed to do to succeed was to act like a Christian version of King David. He had to be brave and lead the troops in war and stuff, but he also had to use his power to protect and materially benefit the church and make sure that society was governed with justice. Justice, of course, in this context includes things like punishing thieves and murderers, but it also means making sure that everyone is worshipping God correctly according to church law. Kings were not allowed to be lax about this stuff because minor sins could develop into bigger sins, as we saw due to the ideology of moral contagion kings who didn't do this stuff would undoubtedly be subject to military defeats and plagues and things like that. We will talk more about Davidic kingship in upcoming episodes, but obviously this is all fairly important in how the kings choose to deal with non-Christian populations or people who are suspected of representing a moral contagion. So with this sociological context, how did these non-normative groups fit into society? How is their presence explained by mainstream society ideologically, and what practical benefits existed for all parties in this situation? How did different parts of European society partake in these ideological and practical incentives? and How did this all change over time? It's a complex issue. From an ideological standpoint, I think we set the scene fairly well last time out and earlier in the episode. Augustine's views on Jews as a witness people was highly influential, and the adoption and reiteration of Augustine's position on this issue by Gregory the Great would turn this view into bedrock orthodoxy within the Catholic Church for the rest of the Middle Ages and arguably right up to the modern day. Unlike Augustine, Gregory was also able to turn the idea into action in Rome itself, where he acted to protect the Jewish community from assault. The only time he allowed Jews to have their property taken was when the Jews were found to be holding Christian slaves, which opened up the danger that the Christian slaves would end up being converted to Judaism, and so the slaves were taken from the Jews and given to Christian merchants. Of course, as we know from our episodes on the medieval economy, the slave trade at this time was mostly going to the caliphate, so there's a big sad trombone aspect to this whole event, but Gregory's positions are at least logically coherent and would be very influential for centuries. Beyond the Jews, it was recognized in Christian circles that forced conversions had a dubious value. If going to heaven was based on having faith in Jesus, surely the act of simply going through a ritual and saying some mumbo-jumbo wasn't enough? Repression of competing ideas and organizations was one thing, but conversion under duress? What value did that have? And as far as different cultural groupings went, the Bible was pretty clear that Jesus was supposed to be Jesus to everyone, regardless of culture, and so different cultures should not be persecuted so long as everyone was Christian. When all of this was taken into account, there's a set of very strong arguments in favor of protecting the Jews specifically, of trying to convert other non-Christians primarily via persuasion and not by force, and of being accepting of different cultures. And, as I said earlier in the episode, lepers were supposed to be recipients of charity. All that said, alternative arguments were made ideologically that were less touchy-feely. As far as the Jews went, starting in the 1200s, an argument began to circulate that the Jews of that time were no longer the Jews known by Augustine. The argument's a bit technical, but basically it was said that the Jews of the 1200s saw the Talmud, which is a collection of commentaries on the Bible, as more holy than the Torah, which is the actual Bible itself. Beyond being ridiculous, if for no other reason than the fact that the Talmud was largely already in existence during the life of Augustine, this argument was dangerous because Augustine's arguments in favor of protecting the Jews mostly rested on their observance of the laws of Moses from the Torah, and ideologically this was used as a way to justify the persecution of Jews in some places. Even before this time, some Christian polemicists would argue that Jews in various places and times had too much power and were lording it over the Christians, but we'll get back to that. As far as the value of conversions by force, some Christians said it had a lot of value. Christian doctrine viewed the baptismal ceremony and various other aspects of their religious liturgy as having real rather than symbolic power. As we might see it, there was a magical power derived from God in these ceremonies when properly conducted by a priest. And after all, the pagans of the Roman Empire were, in many cases, forcefully converted, and now we're all Christians. So even a forced baptism, accompanied by forced participation in Christian rituals, might serve to drive off the demons that were undoubtedly possessing the mind of a non-believing person. These arguments were mostly used by the church to justify forced conversions of the pagans in Saxony by Charlemagne and in the Baltic areas by later crusaders. More broadly, people with different cultures were always viewed with suspicion since they were outsiders. The xenophobia of the Middle Ages was really, really something to behold, and people would always seek to find ways to religiously justify a condemnation of different cultures as not properly Christian, or as violating some basic sexual or ethical taboos. Jews were regularly accused of murdering Christian children in imitation of the murder of Jesus, accusations which were probably entirely baseless. Several individuals who are still considered saints by the Catholic Church have no real record of existing at all. People who made up a fake child murder to get the authorities to do something to the Jews in their area would have to, you know, theoretically produce a victim, and since all the local kids were actually accounted for, they would make up a kid from somewhere else to be the victim, and then blame the Jews for the kid who didn't exist, getting killed in a non-existent murder. (sighs) <sighs> these accusations became a common trope and most such stories should be considered baseless and i should just say i'm, I'm only saying probably and most here because it, in the 2000 year history of interaction between jews and christians it's plausible that some jew killed some christian at some point just out of sheer probability these things happen but most of these stories are entirely baseless Another example is the kind of invective aimed by church commentators against heretics, powerful women, political opponents, and basically anyone they didn't like. The common trope in these screeds would usually involve some brief mention of their beliefs, actions, or policies, a short discussion of why they were wrong, and then several very detailed pages describing how their error had led them into a life of extreme sexual depravity. For example, the members of a Cathar heresy believed that the church should be led by extremely holy people living lives of simplicity and poverty, and that normal people could partake in this activity. Numerous church writings about Cathar priests accused them of using this profoundly aesthetic ideology to somehow justify extreme sexual misconduct with multiple parishioners and living a life of debauched luxury, somehow, while they were running from house to house for their lives from the Catholic Church. Okay. These writings all sound very similar to the works produced describing the behavior of the Theophylact dynasty in Italy, amongst others. In short, this genre of writing tended to view sin, or even deviation from whatever the author arbitrarily considered normal, to be a contagion that would inevitably lead to debauchery and greater sin. In summary, the mainstream religious ideology of the Middle Ages tended to promote toleration, but did so from a standpoint of viewing non-normative cases as lesser. Given that mainstream society tended to view anything different with xenophobic outrage, the fact that these ideologies also left plenty of room for the creation of loopholes and differing interpretation would create problems over time. The concept of sin as a contagion fit in well with the concept of Davidic kingship that called upon kings to take action to promote public morality at all levels of society. In short, from an ideological standpoint, there could be legitimate arguments on both sides of a case, persecute or not to persecute but ultimately they didn't happen in a vacuum. Practical incentives had a role as well, which happens to be the next main topic that I want to discuss. Funny how that worked out. But first, let's take an intermission. This episode, as I said, is going to be a long one, so let's take a minute to stretch, relax, and let some of that sink in. I think Andrew has some nice chill hop queued up for us to all enjoy. Andrew? Andrew? Muslims, women, and even lepers played a role in the medieval economy that made them groups of special interest for the leaders of Europe. We don't know the specifics, but we can say that Jews started out the Middle Ages as being disproportionately involved in mercantile activities, though there were Christians involved in trade as well. Contacts, for example, that caused Charlemagne to include a prominent Jewish merchant in his court, and probably contributed to the early growth of large Jewish communities on the wealthy and well-connected cities of the Mediterranean coast of Iberia. As I mentioned last time, I suspect that the ability of Jews to help ship grain from the Pope's possessions in Sicily to his home in Rome may have contributed to Pope Gregory the Great's decision to adopt Augustinian doctrine in relation to the Jews. Over time, this led to the development of increasingly prosperous Jewish communities across Europe, primarily in urban centers. Indeed, Jews have historically tended to be an urban people, at least in Europe, Beyond the trade aspect that I'm describing here, there is a certain set of logistical requirements that are needed to maintain traditional Jewish ritual practices at an acceptable level. These include the need for a kosher butcher, a supply of trained rabbis, a place to store and study sacred texts, a Jewish graveyard, a mikvah for the ritual cleansing of women and dishes, and at least 10 Jewish men in an area to create the quorum for a valid religious service, which we call a minyan. When, in the timeline of the development of Judaism, these different elements of a Jewish community came into being, and whether they were the cause or the result of Jewish urbanism is a question I will leave to others to investigate. Suffice it to say that, at least after a certain point, both economic and traditional factors led Jews to tend towards urbanism. Podcast footnote. I want to quickly add that rural activities were probably done by some Jews, especially in Spain, where landholding was legal. This is just a broad generalization, and you should take it as such. And of course, this broad generalization would all be flipped on its head in Eastern Europe, where the Pale of Settlement, from the Baltic to the Black Seas, was made up of a network of prosperous but small rural villages. Some Jews in this later period were engaged in trade and banking, but the majority were artisans, herders, or farmers. This is an area I need to study more myself, but my impression is that it all worked because the manor-style villages of Eastern Europe were large enough to support the necessary local institutions, like a basic synagogue, a kosher butcher, a Jewish cemetery, and the like. Meanwhile, the trade connections between the region as a whole allowed a steady supply of rabbis, Torahs, and other things like that to be produced that would not have been practical at a village level. Similarly, Jews in other areas of the diaspora adopted a variety of different lifestyles. While trade seems to have been a common factor in the establishment of Jewish communities in many cases, the idea of Jews as predominantly urban can't necessarily be taken for granted, especially outside of Western Europe. End podcast footnote. The ability of Jews to engage in usury is a key part of this story as well. I'm not sure if I went into this before, so here goes. Usury is a word whose definition has changed in the last two millennia. Originally, the term meant any transaction where a person loaned money for interest. So credit cards, mortgages, car loans, all that stuff would have been considered usury. Today, these transactions are just considered loans on credit, and the term usury is restricted to loans with interest rates that are considered excessive or which target vulnerable debtors. The difference between legitimate and excessive interest rates is a little bit arbitrary, but we have much more familiarity with these kinds of financial instruments these days and much stronger instruments for their regulation. The relationship between society and usury in the West has gone through some ups and downs. Loans on credit turn out to be really important for speeding up and facilitating trade and commerce at any level, but especially in long distance trade deals. For poorer people, however, they can easily get out of control and become a debt trap. For traditional societies being absorbed into global trading networks, like For example, the Semitic tribes of the Levantine Hill tribes in the Iron Age, who were coming into contact with Phoenician and Greek traders along the Mediterranean coast for the first time, these transactions seemed like nothing short of a kind of theft. Here is a guy, who does no physical labor but is somehow rich, who comes around offering you money and then later is demanding that you pay them back more than they gave you in the first place, and somehow was able to explain to the authorities that all of this was above board using fancy logic and maths, So the next part gets technical and complicated, but in short, the Torah ended up prohibiting Jews from engaging in usury, and since the Torah was adopted as the Old Testament by Christians and, to a certain extent, by Muslims, usury ended up being illegal in all three religions. Technically, the Torah doesn't ban all usury, it just says that loans on credit to my people are illegal. So medieval Jews interpreted this as only a ban on usury amongst co-religionists. The Goyim were fair game. I suspect this may have been a post-hoc justification, but in any case the early Middle Ages saw the rise of wealthy Jewish merchants who had international connections and money on hand and technically no prohibition on loaning that money to their Christian neighbors at interest. And so financial services were added to the traditional Jewish portfolio. This is not to say all or even the majority of Jews were merchants or bankers, just that a few of them were, and this was a key source of income for many Jewish communities. Muslims in Spain, and to a lesser extent, Sicily, served a different role. In these places, their continued presence was not really covered by Augustinian doctrine, but was tolerated nonetheless due to the need for the authorities to get value from their land. Ongoing efforts to attract colonists from northern Iberia and the rest of Europe were somewhat successful, but the people who came tended to settle in cities, and anyway, there were never enough to really populate the vast territories being conquered from the failing Islamic states of the region. So the conquering Christian kings and lords offered the Muslim inhabitants of the region attractive terms to encourage them to stay or resettle the lands their families had lived on for centuries, and many of them took them up on it. So while the Jews in these areas tended to be urbanites engaged in trade, financial services, and artisanal crafts, the Muslims tended to be rural, working on the vast estates of Iberia as shepherds and farmers with a few artisans for good measure. In this context, Jews and Muslims were providing a vital and valuable set of services to the somewhat prostrate medieval European economy, and as a result, the leaders of Europe offered the Jews and Muslims protection. In many cases, this was justified by reference to the Augustinian Witness Doctrine. Certainly, this was the case for church leaders offering or justifying such protection to Jews. But even before the condemnation of the Talmud in the 1200s, we have plenty of evidence of anti-Semitic invective. The debate between these viewpoints started early and undoubtedly contributed to violence in the earliest Middle Ages that we don't know the details of. But regardless of the ideological arguments, Jews and Muslims would emerge from this period with a unique and protected legal status in Western Europe. They were not required to be Christian, and they were considered to be the personal serfs of the king. That is to say, they were the king's personal property, and any unjustified harm to them would not just be a crime against law and order, but an attack on the property of the king himself. So let's dig into the status a little because it's important, and it affected Jews and Muslims slightly differently. Most serfs in Europe were tied to their manor, but they were technically allowed to move around if their lord gave them permission to do so. Most serfs were not, but Jews were allowed to go about their business and anyway their manor could be construed as the entire kingdom. As we have seen in earlier episodes, serfs gained a number of advantages from their relationship with their lord. They were subject to that lord's legal protection and jurisdiction. For most serfs, this meant that their legal world ended at the local manor court. But for royal serfs, this effectively meant that they always had the option of taking their legal cases directly to the king, or at least to royal officials. Given the incentives I have laid out, these courts could be expected to be somewhat friendly. Since the royal court was also the main method for the king to enact policy, this made all Jews to some extent direct agents of the king, though the day-to-day use of Jews to enact laws was relatively limited. Muslims were theoretically in the same boat as the Jews, but because they were working as agricultural laborers, their practical access to royal officials was extremely limited. So over time, Spanish Muslims became the property of their local lords, rather than the king, and most of their legal troubles were resolved there. This might be seen as a threatening development, since royal protection was extremely important to Jewish survival, and local authorities were often a major threat, but in practice, whomever ended up owning quote-unquote, these non-Christian populations, ended up behaving similarly. The lords were getting major economic benefits from the relationship, and they rewarded it with special protections from violence. While that is all very nice-sounding, serfs were not technically free, and this did have some bearing on the treatment of the Jews and Muslims. Their ability to give testimony in court and their social status could be impacted, though this differed from place to place, and there is never anything like money to act as a social equalizer. More directly, serfs were expected to pay extra fees to the lord beyond those paid by their free neighbors. So while a tenant farmer would have to pay rent, a serf would have to also work a certain number of days each year on the lord's personal lands, and pay extra rents, and pay fees to escape these obligations, or all of the above. And technically they didn't own any of their own land, it was provided by the lord, though in practice this was not really the case for most peasant serfs. The royal Jews and Muslims were subject to these laws as well. While the Jews were not generally required to do physical labor, since there is nothing so bad at gathering a harvest as a wealthy merchant, they did have to pay fees in lieu of that requirement. Rural Muslim laborers were generally subject to labor requirements. Both groups were also subject to extra taxes, extra fees, etc., and Jews often had to make forced loans to the crown, and sometimes royal officials would simply show up and confiscate their property, since it was really theirs anyway. There were also restrictions on Jewish and Muslim behavior that went beyond their status as technical serfs. When these laws arose is difficult to determine, and the specifics were different in different places. But one thing that we can say in general is that it was illegal for Christians to convert to Judaism or Islam, while conversion to Christianity would smooth over a variety of legal and social problems, though not all. Conversion in the wrong direction could be punished by death. In practice, legal authorities from all three groups worked to prevent any kind of conversion. Conversion to Christianity would rob the crown of valuable taxable assets, while conversion between Judaism and Islam could destabilize these communities. As a result, um, it was illegal to convert from Christianity to Judaism or Islam. It was generally illegal for a Jew to convert to Islam or a Muslim to convert to Judaism. And while... Supposedly, Jews and Muslims were encouraged to convert to Christianity. If they did, in many jurisdictions, they would lose all their stuff. To prevent any such destabilizations as conversions, any kind of fraternization between the groups was frowned upon, as potentially leading to violence or improper conversions, and there were laws of varying severity against this kind of thing. Many of these laws were simply ignored. For example, we have no evidence of prosecutions for Muslims, Jews, and Christians engaged in casual conversation or anything like that. At least, not that I'm aware of. As a result, taverns in Christian Spain could regularly be found full of Christians, Muslims, and Jews, generally of a lower class, getting plastered together and gambling away their day's earnings. We know this because the barroom brawls that resulted were often the starting point for the larger legal cases that we do have evidence of. If the brawls got really out of hand, those involved might end up having to run to the hills. As the opening quote of this episode illustrates, criminal gangs in the countryside were wonderfully cosmopolitan, and as is often the case, the fear of these violent men was sometimes tempered by the personal ties that they had to the community, by official bribes, and familiarity that eventually grew into a certain romanticism. Organized crime knows neither class nor creed, only horrible, horrible acts of violence. Upper-class members of the three religions also fraternized very openly, which led to a vital and energetic exchange of ideas. It was in this firmament that scholars first retranslated many of the works of Aristotle and Plato into Latin via Arabic and Hebrew. Averroes, an Islamic scholar from the days of the Cordoban Caliphate, and Maimonides, a Jewish one, both produced important commentaries on Aristotle that sought to reconcile their various monotheistic religions with Greek philosophy. Their works were translated into Latin and were deeply influential on one St. Thomas Aquinas, who would end up engaged in pretty much the same synthetic activity. All three would be declared heretics in their lifetimes, and all three are now considered not only highly orthodox authorities in their various traditions, but also leading figures in the wider Western tradition. Despite this intellectual flowering, the intimacy between groups was only allowed to go so far. Sexual contact between groups was initially banned as a way to prevent conversions, but morphed into a legal and social obsession with miscegenation. Any Christian, Muslim, or Jew who slept with someone from the other group outside marriage was condemned to death, or in the case of Muslims, being sold into slavery. And sometimes the Christians were just whipped through the streets before being killed. Uh, it, It was weird. Of course, interfaith marriages were deeply illegal in all three religions. While social forces were considered suitable to prevent such events between women and men of good standing, the visitation of Christian prostitutes by Jewish or Muslim men was considered a part of this ban as well, and was punishable by death. There is a whole wacky and deeply offensive rationale behind the use of prostitutes to guard and defend sexual boundaries, but I'm going to actually save that for next episode when I'm going to be talking more about prostitution directly. Suffice it to say here, that because this barrier was held to be such a huge taboo, and because it was often very difficult to produce solid evidence either for or against a transgression, accusations of the visitation of a Christian prostitute by a non-Christian were a very common form of legal violence used against Jewish and Muslim communities. Now, if the authorities found the accusation to be true, they could actually burn both the man and the prostitute at the stake. So the prostitutes had a unique role in these situations. Firstly, they were expected to police their own clientele. Second, the prostitute had a lot of power over the outcome of the cases and many incentives to deny that anything actually happened. As a result, and thirdly, the accusers would often come up with really outrageous accusations. For example, we have the following quote from Communities of Violence, in which two Christians are accusing a Jew of sleeping with a Christian prostitute. Quote, they spun a narrative of a business trip in which the three met a Christian woman on a country road and each had sex with her. The prostitute, whom the accusers described as young and energetic, had conveniently left for the Balearic Islands, but the two converts were willing and able to provide details about who paid how much and in what order they lay with her. End quote. This is basically the medieval equivalent of, yeah bro, the three of us were walking along an empty country road and no one was there and we ran into this random prostitute from Canada. Yeah, Canada, and we totally had sex with her. And then she left and went back to Canada. You wouldn't know her, but it totally happened. Go burn that Jew-slash-Muslim. Now, the royal authorities in the Middle Ages may not have had master's degrees in public administration or law, but they were also not complete idiots. Most of these charges were just summarily dismissed, as happened in the case I just mentioned. But even so, the threat of these kinds of suits was traumatic and affected behavior. As someone who was the recipient of a spurious lawsuit over a traffic accident, I can say that being sued is not fun, even when you are covered by insurance, the penalty is only a fine, and you know you're going to win. The potential punishment for Jews in the Middle Ages was potentially death, and there was no guarantee that the authorities would dismiss the accusation. In addition, the courts of the Middle Ages often expected financial contributions to help the judge find the time to deliver a speedy and fair judgment. For Jews of modest means, this meant that that you had to pay a bribe that you could not afford in order to get free of even a spurious accusation. Of course, the tendency of wealthy patrons to go to bat for their supporters likely mitigated this, but once again, this underlines the importance of community for survival in the Middle Ages and the terrifying nature of these accusations. Arguably for the court, these financial benefits were really a big part of the point of having Jews around in the first place, and of leaving open this obvious invitation to spurious time-wasting accusations. There are very few examples of people actually being killed for this crime, and the exceptions seem to involve the minority community itself trying to make an example of women from their side who had strayed. Another topic we will return to next episode. In any case, it's clear that the danger of this kind of judicial violence changed the behavior of at least the Jewish communities. There is one instance where a Jewish community asked the authorities to remove a house of ill repute because it was along a road that people needed to use to get water, and it was leaving people exposed to accusations. Now, on the flip side, it's worth saying that we know that miscegenation happened. On a practical level, while Ashkenazi Jews are genetically distinguishable from the European population at large, they're also not you know, brown, like someone from the Middle East would be. While curly hair is prominent, we European Jews burn easily in the sun, and our naked backsides can be seen in the dark. What I'm saying is that over the 2,000 years that we were outside of the Middle East, at least some portion of the population of Jews got busy. More concretely, we have documentary evidence of a number of extremely wealthy Jews who openly bragged about their dalliances with Christian women, and who could afford to bribe their way out of punishment. One extremely interesting example is that of the extraordinary Jewish merchant woman named Goig de Palafrois. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. She was able to live with a Christian lover, Guillermo, for years. Incidentally, she was also a powerful moneylender, and it's suggested that the king maybe was a creditor. Her letter to the king is great stuff, and she claims that she and her lover, Guillermo, burn with love for each other, though they feel like a thief who the lord has ordered to be hanged. She goes on to plead for another extension of their time together. We know that they got permission to live together for quite a few years at least, though we don't know what the end of this particular story happens to be. Any budding feminist romance novelists out there? Take note. This is a guaranteed CVS Bookshelf gold hit. Beyond the sexual boundaries between the communities, there were a bunch of other restrictions that were imposed on many Jewish and Muslim communities, but as we go further into this topic, the specifics become more and more, well, specific. For example, after the Black Death, these communities would often be required to wear special and humiliating clothing, both to help prevent accidental miscegenation and to keep the Jews from being able to dress more nicely than the Christians. But this started fairly late in the day, and was much more on a jurisdiction-by-jurisdiction basis than some of the other stuff we've talked about. For instance, at certain time periods, we know that it was imposed in France, but not in Germany or Spain, but in some parts of Italy. In some places, Jews were restricted to living in certain areas. In Italy, these were the notorious ghettos, and there was a similar institution in Spain called Alhamas. And in some German cities as well. But these are not necessarily what they seem. First of all, the Italian ghettos uh, developed fairly late, coming into our records in general after the 1400s. The Spanish alhama developed fairly early. I mean, given that it's an Arabic word, we can assume that it started when they were still in control. More importantly, they were an entirely different creature from the later ghettos. Rather than being dumping places full of human misery, they were self-governing and usually fortified miniature cities or towns whose walls were patrolled often by royal officials and definitely by privately hired guards. Muslim villages in the countryside operated along similar lines. While it eventually became illegal for Jews and Muslims to build residences outside these enclaves, this was hard to enforce since they were allowed to own property, just not live on it. In fact, the rule about building residences is not necessarily what it seems. The walls and spears that guarded the Alhama generally pointed outwards, which is to say that while avoiding fraternization was a big part of the point of these enclaves, they also made it easier to protect Jews and Muslims from random acts of violence by Christians. This situation is made most clear in the odd case of the Easter Riots. It seems that in at least several, possibly several dozen cities, it was fairly common for the low-ranking clerics to whip the people up into a state of anger at the Jews over the course of the Easter festivities. The Easter plays, which are so venerated by historians of modern theater, were often specifically designed to fulfill this purpose. At some point in the course of these yearly observances, people from the churches near the Jewish quarters would head out into the streets and have a bit of a riot. It seems that on normal years, this would just mean that a few students and low-ranking clerics would go out and throw stones at the walls of the Jewish quarter while yelling abuse at the guards until the guards came over and saw them off. In bad years, masses of the urban population might get involved, and they might be organized enough to utilize common siege techniques like tunneling under the wall to allow them to pillage Jewish homes and assault people out on the street. These events were generally brought to a close by the arrival of royal reinforcements or the intervention of higher church authorities. While these large-scale riots were fairly rare, riots of some kind seemed to have occurred basically every year, even though they were illegal. We know about this because every year, a small group of students and clerics would be fined by the royal authorities. The fines were generally small, not because the royal authorities didn't care, but because the extent of the violence on a normal year would usually amount to just a small amount of cosmetic damage to the walls of the Alhama. Though all of this sounds honestly alarming, and the Jews would always stay within their area and hire extra guards at Easter time, it seems to have been an expected part of the annual cycle of ritualized violence that made the toleration of a Jewish community somehow ideologically okay for the Christian mainstream. Just to wrap up this broad list of legal restrictions on Jews, it eventually became illegal for them to own land in France and England at all, but again, not in Spain, as far as I know. These restrictions probably came later in any case. Finally, it became illegal over time for Jews and Muslims to work in certain jobs. This brings us back to the issue of incentives and the overarching narratives of non-normative populations. To explain this, let's start with the somewhat fun story of kosher butchers. Without going into excruciating detail, Jews are generally supposed to follow a set of dietary rules. There are quite a few of these rules, but for our purposes, we are focusing on meat. Kosher meat has to be from a specific set of creatures, and they have to be killed in a certain way. Certain prayers have to be said. You can't have any unkosher creatures or their remains in the facility where the slaughter happens, and once all this is done properly, you can't eat all the parts of the animal. Certain cuts, including a few of the really prized cuts, are too close to the sciatic nerves, which means that, this is summarizing a lot, but basically it means that they're considered ritually unclean. Islamic rules surrounding the production of halal meat are actually very similar, and while disagreement about the particulars continues to this day, many imams and observant muslims are perfectly happy to eat meat that's acceptable under kosher slaughter practices. Somewhat unfairly, this doesn't work the other way around, and observant jews are not supposed to eat halal meat, for reasons. The bullet point of this presentation is that Jews are not supposed to eat meat from non-Jewish butchers, Muslims can eat kosher meat, and Christians can eat meat from Jewish and Muslim butchers, including the offcuts that Jews consider ritually unclean. Not anything actually wrong with these cuts, just ritually unclean. Given these dietary restrictions and the central role that they have come to play in Jewish identity over the years, allowing the growth of a Jewish community meant inevitably that Christian lords also had to allow Jewish butchers. This was probably not too controversial early on, but once the guild system got going, this led to headaches. Some guilds did allow Jews in, but the vast majority were avowedly Christian organizations, complete with patron saints and private shrines. They also did not like competition. So the Butchers Guilds were constantly in a state of extreme annoyance in any settlement with a Jewish or Muslim population. In their view, the Jewish and Muslim butchers were scabs, and so specific exceptions had to be carved out by royal decree allowing these Jewish or Muslim butchers to operate and, generally, setting firm limits on their work. These limits were not well observed because Jewish butchers had a kind of unfair economic advantage in the market. At a basic level, they could sell to more people in the community than anyone else. Jewish butchers could sell to Jews, Christians, and Muslims. Muslim butchers could sell to Muslims and Christians. Christian butchers could only sell to Christians. Granted, this is the majority of the population, but let's move on. This competitive advantage was offset, somewhat, by the higher costs of business for Jewish butchers, who had to go through all these extra processes, get rabbinic supervision, buy special salt, and then after all that was over, you still had all these offcuts that their main customers weren't allowed to buy. If this process ended there, Jewish butchers would actually be at a competitive disadvantage. So what the Jewish and Muslim butchers would do was sell off those offcuts to Christians at rock-bottom prices, just to recoup the costs and move the stock. Pretty soon, the Christians were flocking to the Jewish butchers, eager for sirloin, eye-round, and tri-tip roast, all fresh, all produced under rigorous supervision, and all basically sold at cost. Pretty early on, Christian commentators got annoyed by this. Whatever the commercial incentives and the distinctions between ritual cleanliness and actual cleanliness, it sort of felt like the Jews were treating the Christians like servants or dogs. I mean, they were unloading subpar product on Christians desperate for cheap meat. To be clear, this wasn't necessarily the case. As a person who currently does not keep kosher, there are some really great cuts of beef in the hindquarters of the cow animal. But you can see how the perception might not be the best. Podcast footnote. Since this is a long episode anyway, please excuse this short flight of whimsy. I should warn you that it's not all going to be vegetarian-friendly, but here goes. I'm a person who loves cooking. I actually have a butcher's beef cuts guide on the wall of my cubicle. The hindquarters of the cow animal includes the sirloin, flank, and the mighty round primals. Primals are large regions of the cow animal from which smaller cuts can be taken. This is all physiologically similar in any other commonly eaten animal like a goat or a sheep or... A pig, but we're not talking about pigs. Amongst beef aficionados, sirloin cuts are well-known and loved, while the flank and the round are generally looked down upon as cheaper cuts, though they are great for stews. However, some of my favorite cuts come from the round, notably the eye round roast. It is lean, all the fibers align, which means that it's easy to slice and get nice tender slices, and it's a reasonable size to cook for a smaller family. In short, it is the perfect roast beef, especially in the backyard smoker. Now, oddly enough, most of the muscle groups that you find in the round, which is the back leg of the cow animal, are very similar to those you find in the chuck, which is the front leg of the cow animal. And yet, American butchers treat these like completely different things. I personally blame the over-reliance of American butchers on the industrial bone saw, because the cuts they take from the chuck are just all over the place. They're cutting across seven or eight muscle groups at a time to create these horrible Frankenstein's monster cuts that are really fit only for pot roast. My understanding is that butchers in commonwealth countries are not so over-reliant on fancy equipment and tend to do a better job of keeping muscle groups together. In my experience, many kosher butchers also follow this noble practice, which is definitely good news for my kosher friends in the audience. If you are out there, do yourselves and me a favor. Go out and get a chuck eye roast and do the following. Blast your oven to 500 degrees. Rub the meat with oil, salt, and pepper cook it in the oven for seven minutes per pound, and then just turn the oven off and walk away. Usually, if you come back around three hours later, it'll be done. For iRound, it makes perfect, rare roast beef. Sliced thin, it is the best thing in life. I'd love to know how it turns out with chuck eye, but conventional grocery store butchers don't often stock that cut, so I must live vicariously through you, my friends. So please try it and let me know. Anyway, end podcast footnote. Okay, back to the kosher butchers of medieval Europe. Selling off the cuts to Christians was an issue of ritual cleanliness rather than the physical safety of the meat, but you can see how people might look askance at the practice. Once the butchers' guilds got involved, they saw this as an attempt to undercut their market. Not only did the kosher butchers have an unfair advantage in terms of who they could sell to, now the Jewish butchers were undercutting the market with cheap meat the Jews were too good to eat themselves. So laws were passed, banning Christians from shopping at kosher butchers. And those laws were promptly ignored. In fact, many Christian customers came to see the extra levels of ritual cleansing and supervision required by the Jewish butchers as an added level of protection that assured the meat's quality in a time without competent food safety officers. This particular dispute was not ever really fully addressed, and did lead to some low-level violence from time to time between the butchers. In many ways, the story of the kosher butchers is a microcosm of the economic forces at work on the Jewish, Muslim, and Christian communities of Europe, and how these forces led to conflict. In the early Middle Ages, the European economy was moribund and the Jews, amongst others, were able to prosper by using their unique social advantages to fill some key market segments, namely trade and finance. But over time, the European economy picked up, and Jews began to find that what had been social advantages now became liabilities, as Christians began to prosper in these same market segments. It started in trade. Jews had represented a significant part of the European merchant class and shipping industry, probably because the Jewish diaspora made it easier for Jews to find friendly ports in a lawless time. To be clear, there were also Christian merchants and ship captains working alongside them, and in these early days of growth, both groups were able to share the market. But over time, Christian merchants and sailors began to edge the Jews out of the market. Christian merchants made long-distance trade connections, just as the Jews had, and now the religion of the Jews made them subject to bigotry at many ports. The incipient anti-Semitism of European society meant that people dealt preferentially with Christian merchants to some extent, though Jews never left the industry entirely. Still, the emphasis of the economy in Jewish communities turned to the financial sector and Jews became bankers to kings and princes, until eventually, Jews faced competition there as well. The first major group to challenge them were the Knights Templar, a crusading order that got around bans on usury by calling the interest a servicing fee, or a mandatory donation to the order. Once that started to happen, other Christians who were involved in long-distance commerce soon began to enter the market as well. Despite this new competition, the fees, taxes, and obligations Jews owed to the royal authorities remained, and in some cases increased. Again, many Jews remained who were able to work in the world of high finance right up until the end, but it became harder to survive and their numbers decreased. Unfortunately, this happened at around the same time as the rise of the guild system that tended to keep Jews out of artisanal work either via direct bans on Jews in those industries or simply by the trick of the Jews being banned from the guilds themselves. This meant that Jews were kind of stuck. There was no longer enough high finance or trade to support the people who worked in these industries, and so they turned to other kinds of usury. Unfortunately, this meant that the Jews were left engaging in the kind of financial practices that even today we view with suspicion. Rather than bankers, they were forced to become pawnbrokers, or the medieval equivalent of payday lenders and loan sharks. And potentially, like modern loan sharks, they couldn't always depend on the legal system to ensure delivery on their debts. And so they charged high rates of interest and, at least according to the Christians, they often hired muscle to help get payment on those debts. As you can imagine, this did not make the Jews particularly popular. Interactions between the poor and the Jews was increasingly restricted to the Jews showing up to collect predatory debts. Meanwhile, the local preacher man keeps telling them how the Jews killed Jesus and stuff. Other forces intervene here. From the king's perspective the jews had been a way to get resources out of parts of the country that the court did not necessarily control directly like southern france this was still true as we get into the 1200s and 1300s but there are now other options in the form of various christian bankers and merchants at the same time this period also saw most western european monarchies begin to consolidate their power across their kingdoms this consolidation was deeply resented by local authorities who didn't usually have a way to fight back directly These local authorities could be members of the nobility, as in Spain when the nobles assumed control of the local Muslim population, but it could also consist of city governments in southern France attempting to take greater control of their hinterlands and trade networks. This brings us to the Shepherd's Crusade, which I think will bring all of this together. The traditional story of the Shepherd's Crusade starts with a poor shepherd in Normandy, who claimed that the Virgin Mary visited him and told him to go fight the Moors in Spain. He gathered together a group of thousands of peasants who headed south, hoovering up food along the way. Along the way, they went to Paris to ask the king to lead them, but he refused. This apparently turned them from a semi-well-intentioned rabble to a giant-sized angry peasant mob. They ransacked a prison in Paris, freed everyone inside, and began to fight their way south. As they moved through central France, they began attacking Jews in symbols of royal authority, since the king had betrayed his duty to lead them. As they went, their numbers continued to grow, and they continued to hoover up food from the local population. Then they got into Languedoc, and things really got crazy. Languedoc, you may know, was still recovering from the Albigensian Crusade. As we discussed in the walking tour, it was a relatively prosperous and urban area that had been very cosmopolitan, at least until the Inquisition was invented for the purpose of routing out the Cathars. So even though the Cathars were mostly gone, and the people there were enthusiastic Christians, the royal government was not super popular. In addition, the king of France had been engaged in a process of centralization that was particularly hard on the south, and just to make things worse, he had allowed the Jews back into France after they had been expelled by his father, and was helping them collect their old debts. When the shepherd crusaders arrived, the countryside went nuts. Tens of thousands of people joined up, and they went in every direction, attacking castles, priests, Jews, and leper colonies. In several of the fortified cities of the south, local people let them in, and they joined up in a savage round of anti-Semitic and anti-leper riots. Then they moved to the next town. Royal armies were scrambled to combat the shepherds, but they were simply too mobile. The armies of peasants would split up and go in different places, or come back together to hit new targets. Eventually, the royal army was able to corner a large portion of the peasants and defeat them in a battle, but not before a group of several thousand split off and headed over the mountains of Spain. The king of Spain warned his officials not to let anyone cooperate with the shepherds and to keep the local Jewish population in fortified locations. This served to protect the vast majority of Jews in Spain, but there is a risk inherent in this strategy. At one castle in Montclus, it seems likely that the shepherds came upon the defenders before they were prepared though the king would later on be convinced that it was a case of treason. In any case, the shepherds got into the castle and disarmed the garrison. Then they slaughtered 300 defenseless Jewish men, women, and children. The army of shepherds then split up again and began seeking new targets and new recruits. But in Spain, the country was against them, both in terms of terrain and popular sentiment. Despite a few riots that had only a handful of fatalities or injuries, the cities of the region barred their gates and the royal castles were now well prepared and defended the king brought together his army and went after the shepherds who struggled to stay mobile in the confined mountain passes of northern Spain. After a few weeks of furious campaigning, the king cornered the shepherds in a mountain pass and crushed them. Most prisoners were executed publicly, though a few thousand were allowed to slink back across the border to France. Back in France, the king was really angry at having a big portion of his country ransacked and began handing out his own punishments. Notably, there were heavy fines for nobles or towns who had supported the crusade or who were suspected of doing so. Given that this ended up being most of the towns and lower nobility of Languedoc, the fines led to a new uprising in southern France, more attacks on Jews, and a particularly vicious round of attacks on leper hospitals. Almost all the hospitals in southern France were seized. The king's response was muted by the fact that he died, but his brother did insist on restoring order and collecting the fines. This made him unpopular, and as a compromise he expelled the Jews again. So that's fun. What do we make of this? The traditional story is that this was a spontaneous outburst by ignorant peasants who just went bonkers once they got away from home and traditional authority and power structures but David Nirenberg has brought out letters from the archives of Spain and France that show that these seemingly disorganized mobs were, in some ways, much more sinister. The traditional view is that a mob is a leaderless mass of emotional human beings acting on an irrational instinct. They are certainly not an organized military force, they are subject to persuasion, but they can also act illogically. This view of mobs certainly has examples to support it, but there are other kinds of mobs. For example, in the Roman Republic, mobs of people who supported people in the Senate were known to assassinate people who were much more popular than any of the senators in question. Or two different mobs would come together and fight each other. Or you could think about the mobs that conducted lynchings in the United States, who were often actually organized by a core group of KKK members. So mobs can be genuine outbursts of popular will, but they can also just as easily be a loosely organized mass of people who share social bonds. And while this kind of mob usually isn't led by the legitimate leaders of society, they often are led by people with some sort of large stake in events and who have an ability to mobilize subgroups of society in the face of a lack of organized resistance. In other words, local leaders collect a gang of thugs and act like it's a spontaneous event. It's in this context that we should probably understand most of the mobs that we've talked about today, especially those in southern France. When the shepherds arrived in Languedoc, they were already primed to resent the royal government, but they entered into a region of simmering rage. The targets that these mobs attacked were all symbols of royal authority, and just as importantly, they were resources that local power brokers did not control, or which represented competition with local merchant leaders. When the group moved into Spain and away from local support, they quickly began flailing and were crushed with, I think, a fairly satisfying level of brutality. As David Nirenberg points out, It is the sequel to this event that really shows what was going on here. In Spain, the king made a show of compensating the Jews who were impacted by the event, but then most of the affected Jews were dead. Regardless of this technicality, the attack sparked a decade of legal proceedings against various communities, officials, and local leaders, most of whom ended up paying out a variety of glorious fines into the royal coffers. The king of France attempted to do the same, but as I said earlier, this led to a revolt, and the king died tragically before he could collect his glorious fines. Before he did, the leaders of this revolt, which is to say the city fathers of the cities of Languedoc, wrote a letter to the king explaining that they weren't really revolting against the fines. They had in fact uncovered a conspiracy. Yes, an evil conspiracy funded by the Muslim king of Granada, who was working with the local Jews. These non-Christian communities hated Christianity and wanted to weaken it so that the armies of Islam could march in from, like, hundreds of miles away. How would they do this? Well, the Jews had paid the lepers to go around poisoning the water supply with a special powder that would turn people into lepers, and the lepers were willing to do this because the lepers hated everyone who was healthy, and they went about the task with great enthusiasm. This story is nuts. It's, it's just nuts. People at the time were afraid enough of these three groups that there was a brief panic about this not only in France, but it spread to Spain as well, though it quickly blew over in Spain. For the king, whatever he thought about this story, it ended up being convenient for him to accept it as a way to avoid having to send in another royal army and forcibly reconquer the entirety of Languedoc, though he did, of course, insist on the payment of those fines. Oh, and even though he expelled the Jews again, technically as their lord, He now owned all their possessions, and that included their debts. So um, if you could just make out that check that you were going to send to the Jews, if you could just make out that check to King Charles, that's Charles, C-H-A-R-L-E-S, thank you. Wait, I hear you saying, okay, royal officials I get, Jews sort of make sense with the debt thing. The priests of southern France were kinda linked to the Inquisition, so okay, but lepers? Why did the leaders of the cities of southern France go after lepers, not once, but twice, and with seeming specific hatred? Well, as I said earlier, the leper hospitals were becoming very wealthy, and that wealth, in the form of land and similar resources, was often managed by people with no direct stake in the local community. For example, royal officials or religious officials. The Jews and leper hospitals in this region thus represented a number of things that these groups of local, mid-level power brokers hated. They represented centralizing royal authority, since the Jews and many of the leper hospitals were legally the king's property. They also represented competition, since many Jews were merchants or bankers, many of the oligarchs of the south were as well. The leper institutions had some mercantile interests, but also represented resources, just in terms of land and possessions. And these land and possessions were outside the control of these city councils. So when an opportunity came, they burned. The inmates were scattered, and their stuff was taken and sold off at auction, all spreading leprosy around the countryside. I'm sorry. The arm-waving isn't entirely voluntary. But I am exasperated. Last time out, I said there was a danger inherent in trying to extrapolate systemic conditions from exceptional events. So as we wrap up with this exceptional event, I sort of want to bring all the stuff that I've said together and paint a picture of what the relationships between these communities would have been like on an average Tuesday. First of all, the legal records we have indicate that direct physical violence was fairly rare between these communities. The Jews and Muslims were not about to tempt fate by attacking Christians, stories of mob-style loan shark shakedowns notwithstanding. That kind of thing may have been more common outside Spain, where economic options for Jews were more limited, but I'm honestly dubious even then. In any case, the numerous special protections offered by royal and church authorities for Jews, which were enforced by huge collective fines and dudes with swords, seems to have mostly done the trick on keeping incidents to a minimum. What physical violence existed was often confined to ceremonial acts of violence, like the yearly stoning of the Jewish quarter on Easter. What was extremely common was the use of legally sanctioned violence in interactions between these groups. The most common of these revolved around the policing of sexual boundaries, but Jews and Muslims regularly faced spurious lawsuits in areas where proving the truth could be hard to do. These lawsuits were usually dismissed summarily, but they did potentially represent an existential threat to the plaintiffs, and royal authorities did generally expect some compensation for their trouble, so they could be expensive. Ultimately, the non-normative populations of the pre-plague years in Europe were on an unsustainable path, where royal fines and economic restrictions were driving them into unpopular parts of the economy, even as the royal need for their presence was reducing and local economic elites were seeking ways to fight back against centralization and gain economic resources that the Jews and Muslims had. But, on an average Tuesday, that wasn't necessarily clear. Against the regular violence of the period, we should set the fact that Jews and Muslims were active parts of their communities. Every year, Jewish and Muslim communities participated in processions in urban communities, something that they took so much pride in as to come to blows with each other over the honor of going first in the parades. As we said earlier, it was common for lower class people to hang out together regardless of laws against the practice, and they did so in the context of business, as was the case in the kosher butcher shops, and in the context of simple social gatherings, as is the case with the scuzzy and alarming dive bars that I probably would have frequented had I been alive at the time. The shared intellectual culture of Spain started under the Islamic Caliphate and only grew more important under the Christian kings in the pre-plague years. For lepers, the occasional attacks against them and their institutions ultimately did nothing to resolve the underlying issue of leprosy being a communicable illness. No matter how often the leper hospitals were burned and their stuff taken, they ended up being refounded because European society needed a place to put lepers. So I think it's clear that medieval society, despite being hostile to these outsider groups, was able to find ways to negotiate an ideological space in which the groups could coexist and in which conflicts could be controlled. On the other hand, I think it's clear that this ideological space was created and maintained with violent conflict. The segregation of Jews, Muslims, and lepers helped to reduce casual conflicts and may have served to provide for these groups' physical protection. But as in all instances of segregation, this space could only be maintained by policing its metaphorical and physical boundaries with explicit threats and acts of violence by the government and society as a whole. To us, this contradictory state of affairs seems hypocritical, cruel, and unstable, and that contributes to the idea that this would inevitably collapse into the cataclysms of early modern Europe. But it's worth remembering that Jews lived in some version of this condition from the 600s to the 1400s, and even longer in some places like Italy. This is not to make it out to be some sort of utopia, but this kind of longevity is hard to describe as unstable, at the very least. It's also worth remembering that no one in medieval society was getting up every day, feeling great, and dancing around a maypole. We have talked about how faction fights in medieval cities often led to fully-fledged street battles, and noble Italian families ended up going so far as to physically fortify their houses with crossbows and catapults. We can probably assume that low levels of violence coexisted with cooperation and camaraderie between many, if not most, urban factions in many, if not most, urban zones in Europe. We've also discussed how noble families in the European countryside indulged in long, low-level feuds that could sometimes spiral into fully-fledged conventional wars. Spurious lawsuits were common amongst all European classes, and if you'll forgive the generalization, European legal codes of the time, at least as they were written down, were not exactly shy about killing people horribly. Usually, of course, people could buy their way out of these punishments, and for many of those involved in the court system, both as overseers and plaintiffs, this was a feature and not a bug. Meanwhile, day-to-day law and order was being maintained by the threat of blood feuds and vigilante justice. In this show, we've talked about bishops who wielded maces to avoid violating the prohibition against priests spilling human blood. We've seen queens subjected to starvation and torture in order to get them to agree to a forced marriage. And we've seen the strange tendency for younger members of the Carolingian royal family to suffer multiple mysterious fatal accidents while hunting. The Middle Ages, in short, were a dangerous time. I do think it's clear that minority groups suffered from bigger ideological disadvantages compared to other groups at that time. After all, no one was raising hordes of religious fanatics to march halfway across the country in order to be talked into massacring members of the Baker's Guild, no matter how obnoxious the Baker's were in last year's procession. But for most of the Middle Ages, on most days, I think it's fair to say that the problem was merely one of degree, and one where it was much more difficult for a person to shift their identity. After all, if things got really bad for the baker's guild in one town, you could conceivably move, or change jobs, and your kids didn't necessarily have to be bakers. If a Jew converted to Christianity, it meant leaving behind your entire support system at a minimum. In many places, it also meant you lost your property, since all that stuff belonged to the king. And once forced conversions really got going in the early modern period, many people still suspected Jews of being crypto-Jewish, or things like that. How did all this compare with other diverse pre-modern societies? Given that we lack time to go into the full detail this question would require, I'm just going to answer with my gut. And my gut answer here is that other societies, notably the Muslim societies of the Mediterranean, generally did better at finding ways to tolerate diversity than medieval Europe. But then that answer is glossing over a lot of diversity. While the Cardoba Caliphate was famously tolerant, the Almohads that conquered them were notoriously puritanical. The Chinese Empire would eventually come to celebrate their three main religions, but there were periods of intense fighting and repression. Ultimately, this kind of comparison is only interesting for two reasons. First, we can sort of eliminate the extremes. No, Europe wasn't some kind of grim, dark nightmare world. It wasn't a two-centuries-long holocaust. But it also wasn't what we would call pleasant. The second and more interesting point we can make is that, actually, this kind of semi-segregated system was a pretty common way to address the issues raised by a multicultural society in pre-modern societies. For example, it's very similar to the millet system used by the Ottoman Empire. Now, I'm not an expert on the millet system, and there may be shared origins, but the millet seem to have a shared basis in both Islamic and Roman legal concepts. And so it's not surprising that most Islamic polities of the Mediterranean basin, except the Almohads, had some kind of similar-ish millet system. I can't think of any system of this kind in the Far East, but let me know if you happen to think of any. In any case, I think this line of thinking probably indicates that the violence in Europe has less to do with the legal frameworks than it does with the ideological, economic, and social contexts. I hope that all made sense. In any case, my more moderate conceptualization of this period might seem wrong, given what we know happened later. But we have to remember, they didn't know what was going to happen later. The eventual expulsions of the Jews and Muslims from Europe and the horrors of the Spanish Inquisition were driven by forces that were unique to their time and place. While they shared some ideological, economic, and social genes, if you will, with the earlier period, they were different circumstances, and those different circumstances can make all the difference. I think that's well more than enough for one episode, so let's end it here. Remember to tune in next month when we will address the strangest minority group of all, women. That's next time on Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation.